I mean, first of all, it's an unmitigated tragedy what is happening in, in, in the Gaza Strip, in the West Bank, but also in Israel, it, because it affects at the end of the day all communities. And of course, what's happening in Gaza is beyond devastating. Um, I'm outraged also that so many of our colleagues have been killed, 134 from UNRWA, one from the WHO, that our humanitarian system is not respected, that we are not able to provide what we would normally be able to do in a situation of war, and that human rights and international humanitarian law are violated on a daily basis in the most gravest of forms. And it is absolutely critical that accountability is part of any future arrangement because we know that if impunity reigns and if the facts are not told and if truth is not told, we will have grievances going on and on and on. So I hope that with the work that we are doing from the human rights side, but also that the International Criminal Court is doing, that the different mechanisms are doing, that this is actually going to help us overcome some of the accountability issues that, that we face in this situation. So what next steps do you envision and what do you say to those who are flagging possible signs of genocide? So, I, we are going to continue documenting, reporting, monitoring the situation. I'm very worried about the risk of atrocity crimes. I'm very worried about the situation in the West Bank in particular, because what we see is we, since the 7th of October, over some 271 Palestinians have been killed, including 69 children. Um, I'm worried about what this means in the future. I'm also extremely, extremely <laughs> shocked by the dehumanizing language that I have seen both from Hamas but also from Israeli military and political leaders. Some of them have, have made comments that are utterly unacceptable and that worry us a lot. If we turn now to Ukraine, um, in the Ukraine conflict, you've denounced the shockingly routine grave human rights abuses committed by the Russian forces. Uh, to little or no practical effect. And there are several human rights mechanisms that are monitoring violations and publishing reports regularly. How do you keep the spotlight on another horrific war, one that's been grinding on for almost two years now? Yeah. So immediately when I go back to Geneva next week, I have to address the Human Rights Council and provide them an update on the human rights situation in the Ukraine. And as you know, during winter, the situation is even worse because some of the communities, especially near the front lines, have not been able to get access to electricity again. We have the ongoing killings. We have serious human rights violations, in particular torture, that's happening uh, when, whenever, there are, whenever the Russian forces are able to occupy territory. And yes, we just need to make sure that, again, accountability is going to be served. And again, we have a number of mechanisms, similar to what we see in the Middle East, uh, accountability mechanisms that are being used at the moment. And I just hope that they will actually serve justice. Mm -hmm. This is in the interest of all the victims. So the key is always accountability? The key is accountability, because it's been the missing link in most conflict situations around the world. And if you don't address accountability, you will end up again in war and conflict. So then you would say that there is hope of ensuring due process in a war like Ukraine? I mean, it, I mean, first of all, 
the question is um, when that can be done. Uh, but we have seen in so many other situations, if you look just at Bosnia and, and the wars in, in former Yugoslavia, but also Rwanda and other situations, you actually see people having getting caught, even today. I mean, we still have national jurisdictions, universal jurisdictions that apply, and you can never, once you have committed this type of crimes, you can never be sure that at some stage you may not be caught. So I, am, I believe in, in this accountability mechanism. We did not have it 75 years ago. I mean, we had it in the wake of the Second World War, and that system that was established with the Nuremberg trials has helped us a lot to actually build up a system of accountability. I know it's not quick enough. I know we should have it everywhere and with the same intensity, but it is the beginning of something that is incredibly important. And it's a process that you expect to build up over time as a deterrent? I, I think it, we have seen it to be a deterrent. We need to make the price of non-compliance much higher. And that's why you need accountability as part of it. It's part of the prevention as well. Okay. So you're the High Commissioner in the 75th anniversary year of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and you've reflected at length about mm -hmm. the state of the world and what humans do to each other and to the planet, and you've called on it for, for it to change urgently. Um, what do you say to those who have lost faith in human rights and that say that they only apply to some and not others, or that they're slow? Yeah. Well, within the UN, within the United Nations, we were born out of cataclysmic events, two world wars, Holocaust, the nuclear threat, um, massive displacement. You had in Europe alone 60 million displaced. You know, when we talk about figures today, you can see what it was then. Out of this came the Charter of the UN and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and, and it was done against the backdrop of a horrific period in, in human history, and it was done precisely with this feeling of never again, and that's what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights has given birth to. And we have seen over the last 75 years, we don't talk enough about the achievements, we have seen massive achievements on the human rights front. I mean, if you look at it from a historical perspective, um, of course, there are also failures. But the failures are not the human rights system itself. It's the failures of implementation. And that go brings us back to what member states and their obligations are, but also increasingly businesses, private sector, and non-state actors more generally. And that's where we need to also put the emphasis on. How do you intend to have human rights taken more seriously? And can you give some of those? You've mentioned examples mm -hmm. of how they work or examples and solutions of best practices on the ground. I've just come from Geneva. We had a two-day high-level event on the occasion of the, to commemorate the 75 years of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And it is a minor miracle that against the backdrop of polarization and geopolitical tensions, we got over 155 countries to make concrete pledges that actually are going to be transformative. For example, five countries were pledging that they are going to abolish the death penalty. We have 54 countries who had very concrete suggestions on how to improve on gender equality, on protection of women. 
number of countries, who are 14 or so, who are going to establish national human rights institutions. We have countries that are going to adopt legislation to protect people with disabilities. We have a number of countries who were talking about doing more on accountability issues uh, and transitional justice issues. So that actually gives me hope. With all the negative news that we have, we do see progress. We had, over the last three years, seven countries that decriminalized same-sex relationships, for example. We have two that unfortunately went the other way, but we have seven that decriminalized. So there is progress. We just have to be, we must never give up and we have to persevere with, with our work. You mentioned gender and you mentioned um, women's rights. And if we see from the Taliban to the rolling back of reproductive rights in some of the most so-called developed nations, um, how, do you, how do you interpret the curtailing of women's rights around the world right now? So we have seen a very worrying pushback on gender rights and on gender rights and, and women's rights more generally. But let's also not forget where we have come from. And it's important to bear this in mind. What shocks me today is that things that I would have thought that they wouldn't be an issue anymore, like sexual and reproductive health rights, for example, or, or, more, or just basic equality issues, that they would now become question of debate and I just hope it's an aberration that that quickly goes away because and we need that's why we need to fight for it because we can never take anything for granted that's one of the lessons learned from from human rights you can you, I think each and every generation has to re-own it recommit to it and find a way to push back against influencers who often have misogynistic attitudes and sexist attitudes and patriarchal attitudes that, frankly, shouldn't have a place in the 21st century. And entire state regimes who also... And in particular, if you look at Afghanistan, uh, where you have basically a de facto authority that essentially, well, systematically persecutes women because of, and girls because of who they are, I mean, that is pretty much unheard of in the 21st century. And we really need to find ways and means to stop this. But it's not just, it's not just there. We have also very serious issues in Yemen. We have it in, in many, in PNG, Papua New Guinea, for example, Iran, and, mm -hmm. and, and a few other places where indeed you have such systematic discrimination against women. There are, there's a plethora of country-level elections planned around the globe next year. And we're seeing a massive erosion of, um, in principles of democracy and tolerance, mm -hmm. polarization. Uh, and meanwhile, we're also witnessing a rise in um, well-orchestrated disinformation campaigns yeah. and a crackdown on even peaceful demonstrations. Um, can you tell us what your office does to support free, fair, and transparent elections? It is a great worry for us to see that we have over 70 elections taking place with 4 billion people electing their new leadership. And at the same time, social media platforms that often perpetuate harmful disinformation, even incitement, incitement to violence and hatred. And for us, it's therefore, and it's for the UN more generally, not just for my office, for, for us in the UN, extremely important 
to detect early warning signals quickly and to act on it and to counter it, to then be in touch with, with tech companies who run social media platforms so that they actually do content moderation, for example, and that we counter through campaigns about the harmful effect that hate speech has or, or disinformation has on electoral processes. So you mentioned hate speech and um, hate. What do you say? We see an increased polarization, we see conflicts, we see the rise of anti-Semitism, of Islamophobia. What do you say, for example, to those who, before the conflict that we see uh, with Israel and Palestine, are feeling hatred rise within them? Yeah, I mean, hatred is, is one of those emotions that are extremely negative and, and unfortunately, it sells well. And there is sometimes business interests that drive hatred. And we need to cut down on that, actually. We need to call it out. We need to show these business models. And we also need to find ways and means, again, to bring humanity back to its core and to its fundaments. And I wish the peace, I mean, the, the messages of peace, of healing, of, of actually transforming hatred into positive actions would gain, gain more traction, both in media, but also in the discussions. We hardly have a discussion about peace anymore, which, which is rather striking, or about human rights as a transformative uh, vehicle for, for a better world. And I, I wish we would have more of this. Mm. We've mentioned the 75th anniversary of the Universal Declaration several times. It's, we're coming on to the end of a, of a year's and uh, two weeks of uh, multiple events marking this anniversary. Um, how do you feel coming out? What's what come out of these events? I mean, we have, as I mentioned before, we have these incredible pledges. We have, an inc we, I do feel, and it's sometimes difficult to communicate about it because we are in such a dire, uh, somber moment in our history, but there is a groundswell of, of support for human rights. And I see it among member states, I see it in the private sector, and above all, among young people. I mean, for young people, we know from different opinion polls that climate change and human rights issues are at the top of their agenda. Uh, we had a youth advisory group. We had hundreds of thousands of young people also participate in different events uh, because of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I can tell you, I mean, they know what it means to speak and to feel human rights and, and that actually gives me a lot of hope. So I see this positive force that can help us, you know, put human rights back at the core of, of what we are all about. So despite the current state of world affairs, you feel hopeful coming out of this? I mean, we can never give up hope and we can never give up our work. Um, and I think within the tragedies of today, we can also see what the elements are that actually bring get us out of this, away from this precipice and, and, and let us be hopeful for, for a future that is more peaceful and, and also more embracing of the other.